Good morning and welcome to The Morning Fix. We are excited today to interview one of my former colleagues and all around MedTech man extraordinaire. Uh, this is today's episode is with Scott Nelson, the CEO and co-founder of Fastwave Medical. And we're really excited to hear today about his adventure in MedTech and how he um, ended up founding his most recent company. So welcome to the show, Scott. Yeah, thanks, Julie, for the uh, for the warm introduction. And who, who knew, you know, five years ago or so when we were uh, both working on projects at, at WCG that we would be recording a podcast together, right? Talking about a, a new a new venture. So yeah, it's a, it's a pleasure to be on the on the program and looking forward to a, a good discussion that will hopefully be maybe a, a good a good mix of entertainment plus plus education, you know, for the listeners. Yeah, I love it. I love it. And as you as you mentioned, you know, we we go way back. Uh, when we were both working at a large healthcare marketing agency. And, you know, I've been following your career on LinkedIn and you've been really busy. So we'd love to hear us hear about, you know, the path that got you to where you are today at Fastwave. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, I won't go too far back, right? Because I'm gonna I'm gonna date myself. And if we had video on, you could see my you know my, my gray starting starting to come come through. But uh, uh, at at a high level, I spent most of my my career um, in traditional med tech, primarily the cardiovascular space. I would say the first half of it was was with large strategics. So um, came into Covidian through their acquisition of Bacchus Vascular, stayed with Covidian and Medtronic um, uh, for about six or seven years, and then left Big Blue in 2015. So really, um, for the past eight years or so, I've been, been primarily working on early stage companies. So spent a little bit of time at um, at Touch Surgery, which was a London based digital health startup. I worked, I had the opportunity to work for. Uh, Doctors uh, Jean Neme and Andre Chow, uh, both really, uh, really, really cool people. Very entrepreneurial. They had a nice exit to Medtronic, um, and then uh, started a few companies since then. One of which was Juve, which is a um, a direct to health, uh, or a, I'm sorry, a direct to consumer uh, kind of health and wellness company. Although we 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 did commercialize a class two medical device, but did it entirely online uh, through one channel. Um, it had really, really some really nice growth there, and then. Um, I, did, I focused on that for building that company for about four years or so. And then for the past two and a half, I would say, have been um, uh, highly focused on Fastwave Medical, which is a company I, I co-founded, as you mentioned, and I'm leading as, as CEO. Great. And what is Fastwave Medical doing in the interventional cardiology space? Yeah, and I can certainly go back in time to tell you a little bit more about why we started it, if that's, if that's helpful. But um, yeah, we're developing um, intravascular lithotripsy systems. So um, for, for calcific uh, plaque in, in arteries, both peripheral and coronary arteries. And so uh, one of the historical challenges with calcific disease is that, um, especially with cal- uh, calcium that um, uh, resides sort of in the medial layer of, of the vessel, uh, can be extremely hard to, hard to treat with with common tools like stents, splints, and atherectomy devices. And so, um, intravascular lithotripsy is a relatively new category. Um, Shockwave Medical blazed blazed the trails for for companies like ours, and have done a, a really nice job. Um, but it, it's uh, it's this idea or this concept of of generating um, um, shockwaves inside of an angioplasty balloon uh, that help to modif- to break up or modify uh, calcific plaque. And the, the 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 mechanism of action actually originates to traditional lithotripsy, which is used for you know to, to crack um, uh, crack break up uh, kidney stones. And so um, that's that's sort of where the, the the technology or the idea originated, and it's just kind of applied within a, an, an angioplasty balloon. Talk about your team, Scott. Who uh, was involved in the founding and the creation of this concept? Um, you know, the therapeutic space. 
is, you know, so, so, I don't want to say it's cluttered, but, you know, there's been a, a lot of acquisitions with these smaller uh, organizations or PhDs and physicians coming together. Talk about your journey with your team. Yeah, that, that's a great question. I think it maybe maybe segues into kind of some, some trends that that we've noticed over the past you know half decade or so, um, and and trends that you know I I think will continue to to um to sort of accelerate. And so I'll start with with kind of our, our model with FastWave, and then and then that probably segues into into kind of what I I think will continue to be uh, to be uh, popular. And so with FastWave, um, we spun the company out of our accelerator called Big Sky Biomedical. Um, in early 21, February of 2021, we started working on the project kind of the back half of 2020 and then spun it out of our accelerator as a, as a Delaware, standalone Delaware C Corp in early 21 and then closed on a Series A round of financing. We, we skipped the seed stage and went right to, right to Series A in August of 21. Um, and so I've been kind of heads down working on the on the project for the you know the better part of 18 plus months. And by intention, our, our model with, with FastWave um, because it's a little bit more of a build to buy a- approach, um, and that's that's by intention. Is we've kept the team uh, very small internally at, at Fastwave, and have have, uh, have sort of limited um, limited the the number of internal employees, and largely re- uh, relied upon um, our kind of our, our extended network of, of freelancers and consultants, and then have a key a couple key development uh, partners. Uh, working on both our our catheters and our generator systems, and because of that approach, right, keeping things really lean internally, um, um, and then largely leveraging our extended network, um, has allowed us to really not only move exceptionally fast in comparison to most most uh, uh, med tech startups, but also has allowed us to to flex up and down based on kind of the stage of development and what what's needed at the time, and so. Um, because because we're kind of operating with this more of this build to buy approach, we want sort of not only that that flexibility, um, but also uh, you know having a, a lean team allows us to to probably move move a lot a lot faster as well. So tell tell us a little bit more about that build to buy approach. So are you are you currently looking to buy, or is that down the road, or what would your what would your vision be? You know, for the company, and you know, say two two to five years. Right, right. Um, so I'll 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 start by an, by answering. I'll answer that way uh, in in kind of a, a fashion where most med tech or med med device companies start out is they've got this great idea, maybe they map out you know what it's going to take to get regulatory clearance or approval, uh, depending on you know whether it's a five ten k or PMA. Uh, maybe they have a loose understanding of, of the reimbursement pathway, et cetera, and they, they go down this path, right? Um, but oftentimes they they don't give as much thought to who are the natural acquirers or what what is the what is the um, where are the opportunities to to, to see an exit uh, event, and so this build to buy approach is actually more in line with with uh, the, the former, right? Where um, we early on uh, wanted to wanted to to build a company that we where we didn't necessarily see uh, envision, you know, um, uh, building out a huge commercialization team. Instead, we wanted to move exceptionally fast and hit our key development, regulatory, and clinical milestones in a in a really short amount of time. De risk the company. As much as we could within that that short time window, where it would be a natural fit for a strategic uh, strategic acquisition uh, by one of those natural acquirers, and so I think that's one of the things that a lot of you know health tech or med tech companies uh, kind of don't don't maybe give enough thought to um, early on is who who are the natural fits here uh, to to acquire uh, our, our company. Not that you want to comp- you know, solely focus on exiting through an acquisition I don't think that's probably appropriate but not having a good idea a good idea of who the natural acquirers are um, I think it is a mistake um, and one of, one of the one of the um, another example I, I would say is um, 
if you don't, if your comp, if what you're working on doesn't naturally fit into a, a, a strategic company, um, if there's not really a good portfolio fit, where you, you just need, you need to plan accordingly, right? That means that you're gonna your commercialization model um, might might need to be more. You might that that timeline might be longer, right? You might you might need to build that out and show more a lot more significant uh, commercial traction. And so the business model is going to drastically change if there aren't a lot of natural acquirers. And so I think that's that's definitely something that uh, that you need to you know, most any any founders or medtech health tech entrepreneurs that are listening need to be need need to be thinking about that approach earlier earlier on in the process. Yeah, that makes it makes a lot of sense. And I know, you know, the smarter companies are, you know, reaching out to the business development people at those strategics early on. Yeah, right? you got it. Even before they're even really ready to sell. But just so that, you know, people know about them. And, you know, hopefully, when they're ready, then, you know, that that would you know, they'd have those relationships already, you know, already in place. So 100%. That's a really good point. And I think I think that that's another part of the equation, right? If you're kind of working on something that is, is a natural fit, or there is a, a, a fair number of natural acquirers, it makes sense to kind of begin to have those loose conversations early on, right? Um, the more awareness, um, and it can be kind of maybe more of a softer approach early on and establishing relationships with those BD departments at, at various, uh, various mid and large cap companies, I think is, is extremely, extremely important. And th- this build divide model, I mean, from my perspective, you know, I, I think Duke Rolene, who's the chairman of, of, of Cordis, uh, he blazed a lot of trails with, with, with this approach. Um, Mike Wallace at Devoro Medical uh, follow, followed suit with his recent, you know, uh, exit to Boston Scientific and, and with Devoro Medical. There's a yeah. lot of good, a lot of good examples, you know, um, Philippe, uh, Margot uh, with Chansu Vascular uh, did something similar with CSI, and so th- there, there's other examples of, of companies that are doing it right. But but I think the approach makes a lot of sense, and wh- why I think this trend is going to is going to accelerate is because these early, if you're working on something that is a natural tuck-in, right, you can you can not only move a lot, typically a lot faster, but usually um, your your all-in capital raised into the in, in the company is a lot lower. Which means that you don't need, you know, a monster size sort of, you know, valuation or exit price. So if you can, if you can, you can operate with a little bit more capital efficiency, um, reduce the amount of overall capital into your company. You just, again, you don't, you don't need that four or five, six hundred, seven hundred million dollar exit for it to make for for uh, for it to make sense for you know, kind of all the key uh, investors and, and shareholders. So what you're saying is you're you don't have to have the billion dollar valuation um, just to sort of puff your chest about. Um, you, you just want to uh, you know build a great company that's going to add value to whoever acquires it, right? You got it. You got it. And you know, Julia, you you know Annie Buckman really well, I think, of right? Course. I'm sure the, la- the last time you, you chatted with her, but you know her 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 father, Paul Buckman, actually mentioned something you know similar to me. This is probably five, six, seven years ago now, but he you know. I, I would consider him kind of legendary, uh, legendary, you know, entrepreneur in the, in the med tech space, um, was early at SciMed, uh, I think, I believe was one of the founders of EV3. Um, and then you know, has been, in, yeah. yeah, was, was, was in, in, has been involved in a number of, a number of early stage companies. You know, he mentioned something similar. Again, this was like six, seven years ago when I interviewed him for, for my podcast, he, he, he's like, you know, Scott, that, that's a mistake that a lot of startups make is they just, they raise they, they raise too much capital where you need a, you end up needing like a seven, 800, a billion dollar exit you know, for it to make sense. And that that's just, you know, by, by going down that path, there's just so few strategic companies that are going to make that size of an acquisition because it's going to be so dilutive to them. Uh, you know, he said, in, in, instead, your, your model should be, um, should be largely rooted in, in, in raising less money 
you know, and keeping that that valuation or that exit price lower, you know, you know, maybe maybe it's a 75, 100 million, you know, 200 million dollar acquisition because the number of the number of potential acquirers is that much greater, you know, at that at that kind of price point. And, you know, that that always resonated me. And he's a he's a he's a wise, wise, wise gentleman. So uh, I, I yeah. sort of took that to heart. Awesome. Well, we'd also love to hear a little bit about your consumer health experience and, you know, how maybe that has given you some different perspective, maybe than some other founders have who have worked just in straight B2B, you know, med tech. Um, So how has consumer health and that experience um, sort of shaped, you know, how you approach your company today? Yeah, it's interesting because I am. You know, I, I've always been um, interested in sort of performance-based marketing, right? Even early on in my career, that that was, I, you know, where I operated in a in a you know very conservative medical device company. I always kind of was interested in sort of digitally native, uh, performance-based kind of uh, marketing, for lack of a better description. And um, I got I got to taste a little bit of that. You know, when we worked on, uh, you mentioned one of the projects, Julia. Um, at uh, at Covidian, which was the the Rethink uh, Varicose Veins project, and that the business unit that I was in at, at Covidian was was fairly consumer oriented, right? Uh, in comparison to most most medical device companies, so I I got my appetite for that, uh, you know, a little, or my appetite was wet, I guess, for for that a little bit. And then with with Juve, um, it was just a, a really interesting sandbox to, to to play in. And and Juve, we um we commercialized a, a class two medical device um, is a photobiomodulation device, or, you know, most people under, know, know these devices as red light therapy or infrared light therapy devices. And uh, we had the, we kind of created this category around um, full body in-home light therapy. And I worked on that, built that company um, um, over the course of about four years. We went from, you know, zero to just over 20 million in top line revenue profitably um, and did that entirely online through our e-commerce store. Um, there were no, no other retail retail channels didn't, didn't wholesale again it was entirely online and so um, all of I, I learned a ton along the way and we probably don't have enough time to, to go into all of those all of those details but I think the biggest the biggest thing that I've, I've picked up on probably is just um, expectations right so in the in the direct to consumer world if you're not if you're not constantly iterating pivoting and moving exceptionally fast you will get left behind so quickly um, and so that that sort of that um, you know, one of the one of my favorite podcasts that I listen to is uh, my my first million uh, with Sam Parr and and Sean Purry, and Sean often references like something that kind of breaks your frame, and that that kind of broke my frame a little bit. Is like when you when you see how fast you really can move, um, you kind of bring over those those expectations um, into uh, into you know kind of the, the world of traditional kind of slow moving device <laughs> device land you know and so um, I think that's probably the biggest thing that I've picked up on is is being in the trenches and seeing again seeing how fast you really can move and just uh, uh, using that to sort of fuel our efforts at fastwave okay Scott you make this sound all too easy <laughs> <laughs> um, and you know it's it's funny I'm just listening to you when Whenever we interview guests on the show, they've they've achieved a certain amount of success at this point where they're talking to press and and that's all great. And oftentimes they they talk about the the positives and the successes, but we always love to know. And one of the areas where I it, that would benefit our listeners and our audience and our colleagues is what. And I know you meant you touched on it a little bit uh, with respect to pivoting and but what challenges like what are some of like the really like the main sort of day-to-day challenges that you've experienced that could help others in your space yeah that's that's a that's a great a great question and 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 don't get me wrong i mean there there's been a a ton of mistakes right that i that i've made um you know throughout my career um 
but uh, you know, you know, growing Juve over the over the you know four or five years, um, and then uh, even even with Fastwave, right? Um, but I think you know one of the most important things is that um, um, that that most entrepreneurs or you know leaders within you know early stage companies or, or companies regardless is that. Um, you, you need to expect that, right? I mean, mistakes will be made. Um, and if you're not leaning into those, and, and again, it sounds cliche, but kind of fail, failing forward and, and, you know, sort of dusting off your feet and, 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 uh, and, and, and move, if you're not making those, those types of mistakes, uh, you're, you're probably not, um, you're either probably not moving fast enough or not, uh, not taking as big of a swing as, as you probably should be. And so, um, so I would say, you know, first and foremost, just expect expect mistakes to be made. Um, know those those no those are going to be going to be made. And um, you know, uh, as a as a as a leader or entrepreneur, you need to kind of be a decision machine. And you know, if you're eighty percent there um, on a decision, uh, just move. Um, and you know, twenty percent of the time, you you may not be right, and I have to kind of pivot and, and circle back around and make some changes. But the key thing is just moving moving quick quickly and just optimizing for for uh, making decisions versus uh, versus. Uh, you know, the scenario where you're often kind of spinning around on, on, on something. So, um, so I would say, uh, yeah, that, that's probably the one thing that I, that I would call out. And then you know, the other thing that comes to mind too, is, um, even when you're, even when you're just kind of, um, working on an idea, right. So say you're, you're very early on, but then the idea like maybe begins to show legs, um, whether it's, you know, early development or whether maybe it's in a commercialization capacity and, you know, you start to get really excited, um, in those early days, just imagine a scenario where, you know, your, your thing really takes off, right? So maybe it's one, two, three years down the road and it really begins to have, have legs and takes up, takes off. But some of, but some of maybe, uh, the, the, the foundation isn't, isn't, isn't built, right? Or maybe you don't have entire, uh, like great alignment, right? With the kind of the founding group of people that you're working with, try to solve for those, those issues early on, right? Um, uh, don't, don't kind of, uh, uh, put those under the rug and gloss over them. Um, it's, it's so easy to get excited about something that, that appears to have a lot of promise and just, you know, push things under the rug and not, not deal with those because they'll, they'll, they'll surface eventually. And so I, I would say, you know, that, that's one of the key learnings for me. Um, you know, especially kind of on, on a more personal note, it's easy for me to want to avoid difficult conversations, right. And not have them, um, or not address certain things easy just to kind of, you know, put those, you know, again, kind of put those under the rug. But I, I, I would say even if you're, even if you're getting excited about what you're working on and it has promise and there's a lot of really cool signals, don't be afraid to kind of address, address the hard things, you know, um, cause that, that those, those will surface and those will pop up later on, uh, undoubtedly. Do you think that being a CEO or starting a, a company, do you think that in the, in the tech or consumer tech or med tech space, do you think it requires somebody with a specific personality? Hmm. Um, I mean, I think there's probably certain traits for sure. Um, but I, I would say, I mean, I think there's probably, I'll, I'll answer it this way. And I'm, I'm kind of riffing because that's a great question. I haven't really given, given a, a, a ton of time to, to, to think about. But I would say, um, generally speaking, uh, there's a lot of like different personalities that could run a, you know, a startup um, early stage company. Um, you could be naturally introverted, right? Um, but still uh, see a lot of success, or you could be naturally extroverted and fail completely. Um, so I, I don't think it's probably necessarily a personality type, but I, I do think there's certain things that ultimately are going to lead to success in, in, in a startup, right? Um, and so uh, I, I guess when it, when it comes to kind of character personality traits, and one of those I mentioned earlier, which is around decision making, um, you've, you've just got to be okay with not with, you know, making a decision that is not clear cut. You know, if you're 
70 to 80% confident that it's, it's the best decision. You just have to move forward and know that it, it may not be right. But, but the key, the key point is that you've got to make a decision. You know, Dharmesh Shah, the, the co-founder of HubSpot, I think he, he recently men- mentioned something similar and it really resonated with me where he was like, you know, startup uh, CEOs need to be decision machines, absolute decision machines. And that, that really resonated me, with me because you, you need to, as the leader of a company, you need to be um, kind of cultivating that, that, sort of, uh, that sort of culture where people aren't afraid to fail. They, they make thoughtful decisions, but aren't afraid to fail. They're more, they're more optimized for speed versus anything else. And so I think there, there's some traits like that that I think are paramount. And then also another one, you know, that comes to mind is that, you know, you, you may kind of like the startup world. Um, but, um, if you're not, if you're not okay with, um, sort of the inherent risk that's involved, um, you know, it just may not be a good fit. Um, cause you just, there's always a level of uncertainty, you know, operating in the startup world. That's just uncomfortable. And if, if you, if you're very uncomfortable in situations that are uncomfortable, uh, inherently, you know, that, that's going to be a tough road uh, to haul. And, and I'm not, I'm not going to pretend that that'll just come naturally for, for anyone. It typically doesn't. But you've got to be okay with kind of leaning into just these, these uncomfortable positions and uncomfortable decisions and just kind of, you know, pushing, pushing forward uh, and seeing, seeing where the, uh, the dust sort of uh, settles. Well, and you have to be able to um, be okay to kind of define your own pathway sometimes, mm-hmm. right? Um, you can't always be waiting for somebody to say, here, here, you need to do X, Y, and Z. You kind of have to figure out, you know, what X, Y, and Z are, and you kind of have to make it happen. So, totally. you know, having worked in and for startups, I, I totally agree that you, you can't be uncomfortable with ambiguity. You know? Right. hundred <laughs> percent. You know, Julia, that reminds me of a, um, um, of a, of a conversation I recently had with Lloyd Messinger. Um, he's, he's leading Aqua Medical. They're doing some really interesting things with um, um, uh, the treatment of type type two diabetes using a uh, using uh, ablation ablation uh, uh, devices of the for for, uh, um, uh, for with with an endoscopic approach. And so anyway, he, he mentioned something similar where he was like, you know, earlier on earlier on in kind of my my CEO role, he, he was like, I'd, I'd go to our uh, you know a couple key mentors that maybe sat on the board or when when in his network, and I would say, well. Uh, who's going to do this or that, or I, I'm not sure who's going to, we've got this challenge over here and I'm not sure who can solve for that. And you know, the, the, the guy that he was, he was speaking with, he was like, Lloyd, I want you to go, go over there and, and look in the mirror. He goes, uh, who, who do you see? And Lloyd was like, uh, well, I see it's me obviously. And he's like, well, yeah, that, that's your answer. All of those challenges are all those issues that you just mentioned. No one's going to solve them for you. You, you have to go try to solve them. It's you. The, the, the onus falls on you. And I think that speaks to kind of like, this level of uncertainty and ambiguity, it's, it's kind of sort of always there. Nothing is entirely ever clear cut in the, in the world of startups. And you have to kind of be okay with that. Yeah, for sure. Well, you know, you touched on this earlier in the conversation, but we didn't really get the punchline from you. And so I'd love to know, you know, what are you seeing as some of the trends, maybe one or two trends that we should be aware of in the med tech world? And um, you know, obviously with the economy being a little shaky right now, that'll be interesting to watch, you know, um, how that impacts our sector, but you know, just what's, what's on your mind? What do you think's happening out there? Yeah. Uh, you, you, well, you mentioned the economy and it's, it's kind of a, uh, I've had the interesting kind of, um, opportunity to, to raise capital in, in two very sort of opposite ends of the spectrum, right? In 2021, excuse me, in mid 2021, we closed on our series A for, for fast wave. And then, you know, come what likely kind of approaching mid, mid 2023 here, you know, we're in Q2 already. 
Um, you know, it, you couldn't be, you couldn't, I mean, they're two entirely different sort of ecosystems, right? 2021 was like the heyday of, of, of raising, raising money for a startup. And now it's, it's way, way different, right? Um, everyone is just that much more methodical, uh, and diligence processes are, are very, very intense. Um, and so, yeah, that, that's, I, I think, I don't think that's going away anytime soon. You know, um, I think we're in sort of a new age of austerity here, um, where that, you know, the, the, the world of 2020 and 21, you know, in, 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 uh, in terms of, you know, raising capital, getting startups off, off the, off the ground, um, that, that's not, we're not going to see those for, <laughs> for quite some time, if ever again. So I think just, just going into a, uh, an environment like that with eyes wide open, that's the, probably the most important thing, you know, um, to, to understand, but, but other trends, I kind of mentioned on it with mentioned one of them earlier, earlier, uh, in our conversation is this kind of build the buy approach. I think that is definitely a model that we've seen work with, uh, with a couple of our portfolio companies, you know, Fastway being one of them. But I think that it's really a model that makes a lot, a lot of sense where you, if you can keep the overall amount of capital into your startup relatively small, be extremely efficient with that capital where you can, you know, position it for a tuck and acquisition with a large strategic for whatever, 75, a hundred, you know, less than 200 million, you know, that, 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 that model makes, makes a ton of sense. And I think, I think we'll see more of that in in the future. And I think, you know, kind of circling back around to that kind of the consumer oriented uh, conversation. Um, I, I certainly saw this firsthand with, with, with Juve, um, you know, cause our, our AOV, our average order value uh, was, you know, north of a thousand dollars, which is pretty expensive. Uh, but yet we, we saw, um, we saw, a, we saw a, a, a lot of success, right. Um, and, and I think that, that just that, that trend of consumers taking more ownership of their health, uh, searching and seeking for uh, therapies, treatments, et cetera, on their own, right, without the support of, uh, you know, a, of a physician, that's only going to accelerate in the, in, into the future. And, and, and consumers are, are willing to pay a lot of, a lot of money, uh, you know, for these types of devices or treatments. And oftentimes, they're not going to seek you know, uh, they're not going to be influenced by, you know, someone with an MD behind their name. It's going to be someone that, uh, you know, that hosts a longevity uh, podcast, right? Like a rich role or a, you know, Peter T as an MD, obviously, but, you know, not a traditional MD. And so it's going to be, you know, they're, they're going to be influenced by people, people like that, Ben Greenfield, uh, Dave Asprey, et cetera. So um, I think that that trend is only going to continue. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with you. And it, Julie and I have spoken to so many folks across the industry who, you know, are TikTok influencers and all kinds of things. And I think to your point where if you don't have an MD uh, next to your name, I don't think that, I think there are others that are far more influential, um, you know, in their own right. And so I, I think that's a very interesting trend. Totally agree. Yeah. It reminds me of a, um, of a, uh, I, I saw this post on LinkedIn recently and I think, um, I can't remember who it was from, but they, they're like, it, it, it spoke to kind of a, um, and I can't remember the company, but they were, I, I think they were in the telehealth space, but it was a, it kind of failed recently. Um, or, or there was like, I can't remember the, the exact context, but he made a comment around how like another good example of why, you know, D to C is, it, it will never work in, you know, in, in healthcare. It's like, I mean, I, I couldn't, I couldn't, I, I think that's, I couldn't disagree more. You know what I mean? Um, if if uh, if uh, if if you have a healthcare company, regardless of, regardless of whether it's digital health, medtech, whatever, um, uh, absolutely DDC can can work uh, for sure. Um, I think if it, if it doesn't work, it's not that DDC 
is is not a great fit for healthcare. It's more like you, you probably just never had product market fit to begin with, right? And so DTC was just a channel that amongst other channels that never that that were that, that was never really going to be realized. And so I think absolutely the trend of consumers taking more patients, consumers taking more ownership of their health, especially as health uh, the cost of health insurance just only continues to ri- rise. Everyone almost seems like has as high high deductible plans <laughs> these days. Um, you know, it's almost that's the high deductible plan is, is there by default. And so, you know, the idea of paying cash uh, out of pocket for for treatments, procedures, devices, et cetera, is is uh, is become is be, is not is is definitely more normal, and I think will become even more normal in the in the future. Yeah. Well, Scott, thank you for all of your candid answers. We love to check in with, like I said, with the various voices um, to take a temperature of the industry and see where everyone everyone thinks and where everyone is. So thank you again. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it was great to meet you, Amy, and, uh, and, and great to connect again, Julie. Um, yeah, it was fun fun conversation. And we have one more final question that we always ask our guests. What's your morning fix? My morning fix? Um you know, I typically uh, do some version of intermittent fasting, uh, not because I think that's just the holy grail by any stretch of the imagination. Um, and if you're not familiar with intermittent fasting, it's like this idea of, of going going through prolonged periods of, 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 of time, right, without eating anything. Uh, and then you squeeze sort of like your calorie consumption into a, into a, a, a confined window. I, don't, I mean, it, it can work. It can't work. I think ultimately that's probably more about calorie restriction versus anything else. But I typically don't like to like to eat a ton in the um, in the morning anyway. So my morning fix is uh, is usually you know coffee, um, uh, black coffee with maybe some athletic greens or something like that. Um, and you know I try to try to carve out time uh, for a little little reading. Uh, set set the uh, my set set kind of the the, the focus and uh, and 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 mind in in the in the right way before I start to take on too much. So are you sixteen eight? Is that typically what you do? Yeah 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 yeah. So, sometimes um I I I use the um what is it the, the, the is it zero app I think uh, if I remember right I use that off and on um you know just to kind of uh, uh, track my progress. But yeah, sixteen eight twenty twenty four you know usually is is kind of eighteen six you know. In that, in that general range. Yeah. Nice. Nice. Well, yeah. well, thanks again. Um, it's been a great conversation. We, we, we covered a lot and best of luck to you and your team and uh, we'll be watching. Excellent. Yeah. Thanks for having me on the program. Really appreciate it.